Good morning. Has it been a hot summer or what? So Phoenix has had a record number of days, about 19 days, where they've reached 110 degrees or higher. And it's been pretty hot in Yakima. One of the hottest days I can recall was my wedding in late July in Spokane, almost 27 years ago. Heidi and I learned that afternoon that our church's air conditioning was suboptimal. Granted, I was also wearing a tuxedo and was very nervous, and I had a legitimate fear with their father's a military man that he might harm me if I did not care for my new bride. But fortunately, no one passed out, no one melted. It was a memorable time in that sweltering Spokane heat. Maybe you've had the privilege of attending a wedding this summer, or maybe you're looking forward to an upcoming wedding. Maybe like us, you have an invitation on your refrigerator and marked on your calendar. And maybe you're one of a select few um, who's getting married this summer. Today, we'll be looking at the opening verses of John chapter two, the wedding at Cana. We don't know the identification of the bride and the groom, but we do know some of the guests, including Jesus, and this wedding has now been recalled and memorable for 2,000 years. This was Jesus' first public sign, pointing to who he was as the Son of God and his grace. This miracle shows his authority, divinity, and regenerating power. So what are some of the major points of today's text? We'll talk about the setting in Cana and what a first century wedding may have looked like. Jesus was invited to a wedding. He honored marriage by his presence, and he reminds us that it's okay to go to parties. We'll talk about the problem of when the wine gave out. It's not a matter of if we have problems, but when and who, who do we go to with our problems. Mary instructs the servants to do whatever Jesus told them, and that is still good advice for us today. Jesus is abundantly generous and gives the best gifts in his perfect timing. Our believing should be ongoing as we daily put our trust in Jesus. So let's open in prayer. Jesus, you accomplish extraordinary things through ordinary people and ordinary works. You are in the business of transformation. I ask you to work on the minds and hearts of people today. As you were invited to this wedding, we invite you into our presence today to leave us as changed people. In your name we pray, amen. So if you haven't yet, please turn to John chapter two and let's first talk about the setting. In verse one, on the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. So they talk about this third day. What is this third day? So let's back up a few verses to chapter one, verse 49. Here, Nathaniel, who actually grew up in Cana, proclaims that Jesus is the son of God. Starting at verse 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So this wedding may have been happening about three days after this conversation with Nathaniel. In chapter one, the writer proclaims that Jesus is God. Later in chapter one, John the Baptist proclaims that Jesus is God. And then these first called disciples also proclaim Jesus' deity as well. 
So there's a verbal testimony that Jesus was God in chapter one, and now in chapter two, as Jesus starts his public ministry, well, uh, Jesus will show that he is God. Some have also viewed this third day as a reference to the resurrection. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, the old is gone and the new has come. And this wedding was in Cana, Cana of Galilee. Now Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, had maybe about 500 people in it. The neighboring village of Cana was about nine miles away and it likely was quite small, perhaps less than 50 people. If you lived in Cana, you likely knew many people in Nazareth and vice versa. You maybe farmed together, you shared goods and services, generations had likely grown up together, and families were probably spread out between these two towns. If you were part of a wedding in Cana, you likely had relatives in Nazareth. Mary may have been related to the wedding party and perhaps had a role in serving at the wedding. And let's not forget that this was a party. This was a big deal. For the village of Cana, this may have been the main social event of the whole year. It could have lasted about a week. And for people who were impoverished and living under Roman oppression, to take time off of work and enjoy good food and wine for a week, this was a great party. Now sometimes we may want to pigeonhole Jesus and God as someone who's like us. So being introverted, I kind of want to think, well, maybe Jesus was kind of introverted. And we have these celebrity magazines that say these celebrities are really just like us. So I like to imagine that maybe Jesus kind of lived like a monk and he went off to the wilderness to pray. He wrote some thoughtful commentaries, maybe took some vows of silence. He didn't really have time for a social calendar. But in reality, Jesus made time for others. He went to weddings, he went to parties, and he demonstrated his love for people in the real world. He was not a hermit or a recluse, and he didn't condemn those who were enjoying themselves. Spurgeon wrote, I commend cheerfulness to all who would win souls. And John MacArthur notes that it was significant that Jesus did his first sign at a wedding. The covenant of marriage is designed by God, ordained set apart by God. No other human relationship is as wonderful as marriage. It is the epitome of common grace. A culture that honors marriage, MacArthur writes, will be blessed. But a culture that fails to honor marriage is corrupt and immorality abounds. In Genesis 2, the start of marriage is honored. And now in John chapter 2, marriage is honored as well. An engagement between a couple looked different back then. As the groom, it was your job over about a year to get ready for this new life. This might involve actually building a house for you and the bride to live in. It was preparing for the wedding feast. And if the groom couldn't do well at those things, it brought into question whether he was suitable for being a groom. So Jesus, along with five new disciples, heads off to this village. He's been relatively obscure in Nazareth for the last 30 years, and now this is the start of his public ministry. And in verse three, we read about a problem. The wine ran out. We read when the wine ran out. That's your first blank. When the wine ran out. It wasn't it, however, the wine ran out, or but, it was when. It's normal for us to have problems, crises, emergencies in life and in marriage. So in this, in this first century, was this a little problem or a big problem? Well, they didn't have a corner store to get more wine. In this situation, it was a big problem. In their culture, 
Wine was a staple and it represented joy. Usually people drank diluted wine. You couldn't purify water, so it often wasn't safe to drink straight water. But if you drank straight wine, you were in danger of getting drunk. We know from a variety of passages in the Old Testament, Proverbs 20, 23, Isaiah 5, Habakkuk 2, that drunkenness was sinful and condemned. So it was safer to drink diluted wine that might be one-third to one-tenth of its original concentration. And wine represented joy. Wine is symbolized in both the Old and New Testaments as joy. In Isaiah 55, 1, that we saw in the call to confession, come by wine and milk without money and without price. Um, it's joy. Psalm 104, 15, wine and gladden the heart of man. In Amos 9, 13, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Wine reflects joy in heaven. To have no wine at a wedding would be admitting that the guests and the bride and groom were not happy. So running out of wine was a big deal. It was, sh it was showing that the groom wasn't prepared, maybe wasn't prepared enough to be married. It would have been very embarrassing. In addition, the groom could be fined or sued for not providing adequate food and drink at a wedding. So this was costly socially and financially. So as Mary tells her son that there is no wine, what is she hoping to accomplish? Why did she bring this up to her son? Maybe she was helping to serve at the wedding. Did she expect him to do, to do a miracle? Perhaps, but he had not done one before. Joseph, he may have been passed away at this point, he's not mentioned, and so it would have been natural as a widow to go to your oldest son with a problem. And Jesus would have been really good at fixing problems in their household. He was wise and resourceful, so that may have been the pattern for Mary. I have a problem, I go to Jesus. I have a problem, I go to Jesus. And is that what we do when we have a problem? Bring your problems to Jesus. It's your next set of blanks. Bring your problems to Jesus. Or do we tend to go to other places? When the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. Maybe it's screen time, gossip, burying myself in work, calories. What do you do, who do you go to when you have a problem? Like Mary, you should bring your problems to Jesus. Interestingly, some Catholics have interpreted this passage as you should first go to Mary to go to Jesus. And at Sun Valley Church, we would not have that perspective, but some have used this text just to justify that position. In verse four, Jesus responds to her gently, firmly, and succinctly. He addresses Mary as woman. The Greek word here is genai, and this is challenging to translate into English. You might use the word ma'am. D.A. Carson writes that using this word is courteous, but it's not endearing. It's not a typical word you'd use to refer to your mom. Jesus uses the same word when he addresses Mary from the cross. In a sense, he's moving her from thinking that he is the son of her flesh to that he is the Lord of her life. His father's business with his public ministry is now being started and his mother's business is ending. He's distancing himself from the mother-son relationship. She's no longer in a position of authority over him. It is a separating statement. It would have been great to have been there in person to hear Jesus' tone in this exchange but it may not have been as adversarial as we sometimes read it to be. Then Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? She was focused on this practical problem at hand. 
And he had a different perspective. They had different primary concerns. And then Jesus states, my hour has not yet come. This hour referred to the cross. He was on a divine schedule on an eternal timeline. Then in verse five, Mary responds graciously, commanding the servants to do whatever he tells you. She shows trust in Jesus. Turn for a moment to John 6. John 6, 20 and 29. These were the verses that you meditated on at the start of the service. John 6, 20 and 29. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So what are we to do when the wine fails, when the wine runs out? The most important thing, the thing that we can do is believe and trust in Jesus. In whatever circumstance we are in, we're to trust and obey. And then we move to the solution, the solution. Now back in chapter two, verse six, we learned that there are six large water jars. They hold 20 to 30 gallons each, and they weren't being used to hold wine at the wedding. These held water used for Jewish rites of purification. Keep a finger in John two and flip over to Mark seven. Mark seven, verses three and four. And this talks about the purification. Mark seven, three and four. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, I work in healthcare and I love to wash my hands. It turns out if you have some obsessive compulsive tendencies of hand hygiene, healthcare may be a good vocation for you as well. But these rites uh, here are burdensome and they go further than I would recommend. Um, and now Jesus is repurposing these jars from something that is burdensome with the laws of the Pharisees to something that brings joy. We're told that they are filled to the brim. Is that significant? Possibly it may show their enthusiasm, shows you couldn't add something else to them. And this is a lot of wine. So now there are about 120 to 150 gallons of quality wine. God gives abundantly. Jesus is always equal to the crisis. Through next to the blanks there, Jesus is always equal to the crisis. Now let's look at some verbs. So Heidi has been an English teacher, so I'm getting better at parts of speech. So we're gonna look at verses seven and eight. What are the servants asked to do? They're asked to do relatively simple things. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So these actions were fill up the jars, draw some out, take to the master of the feast. Fill, draw, take. So Jesus' commands here are minimal. They're not maximal. They're doing simple things like trustingly obey. God does the saving things like rescuing a wedding party from shame. They're not told to please completely surrender to me and do these exceptional obediences. It is small things that fill, draw, and take. And this story honors a divine miracle, not human achievement. 
And these servants MacArthur describes are kind of a disinterested party. They don't have a stake in trying to prove anything about Jesus. So the fact that they are used to witness this miracle adds to the validity of this text. We learn of the water becoming wine quietly in verse nine. We read, the water now become wine. There is no abracadabra or shazam. We learn of it through this conversation with the master of the feast. And when did this transformation happen? Maybe in the white space between verses seven and eight. And the head of the waiter didn't know he was talking about a miracle or the groom. So in chapter one, verse three, we read that Jesus is our creator. He's a creator and sustainer of the universe. He changed his hearts of stone to hearts that love him and he regenerated ordinary water into fine wine. Jesus is, the, is in the business of transformation and he gives joy and abundance. Jesus alone can quench the hunger and thirst of your heart. In verse 10 we read, you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus gives the best gifts and with his perfect timing. And Jesus is the perfect gift and he's now starting his public ministry. Jesus incarnate becoming man. God the Father had saved the choice wine of his incarnation until this point in human history. In verse 11, we read this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. These signs are designed to reveal him as the Messiah. Jesus came to earth to do more than multiply food, heal the sick, or make the lame to walk. These compassionate miracles were intended to achieve a higher purpose. They were to lead others to believe in him. They visibly revealed his divine authority. This miracle at a wedding foreshadows the great wedding feast to come on a glorious day in the future. Hear these words from Revelation 19, seven through nine. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made, him, made herself ready. It was granted her to, do, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. So this wedding of Cana foreshadows the great wedding of the feast to come. We also see in verse 11 that Jesus manifests his glory. Jesus' actions showcase his glory that he was worthy of praise. Likewise, we are to live, to speak and act in ways that bring glory to Christ. Interestingly, verse 11 concludes with, his disciples believed in him. Well, didn't they believe in him earlier? In chapter one, verse 49, Nathanael proclaims, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. They were following him. You can think of this phrase as believed into him. They trusted themselves to Jesus. Believing and trusting in Jesus is a living, repeated daily rhythm, like breathing or walking. Trusting is an ongoing reality. It's not a future work to be done. And each miracle that the disciples observed was like a sermon in action. And the miracles they saw gave them a stronger foundation for their faith. Now in verse 12, they head to Capernaum. This was about 16 miles away and would serve as a base for Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Now I wanna take a few minutes to talk about alcohol and the church and the Christian life. I know there are things that we won't agree on and things that leaders of the church won't, won't agree on, but I don't think that means that we shouldn't ever talk about it. We shouldn't interpret a lack of agreement as, okay, now I can do whatever I want. 
hey, you just said Jesus made 120, 150 gallons of wine. The more the merrier. I wear an elder hat and a medical provider hat with some of these comments, but please take them with a grain of salt. My hope is not to offend anyone or celebrate legalism or its opposite, but to promote discussion, probably in a small group. Are you doing great with this? Are there areas where you could grow in this? Sometimes our exposures to, to alcohol early in life affect our view. When I was a kid, my teenage neighbor, Ralph, died in a motor vehicle accident while, while driving intoxicated. That had a profound impact on me as I thought about alcohol growing up. Maybe you've had positive or negative associations with alcohol in your home growing up. Maybe it has had severe consequences on relationships, finances, and employment. So we have some different histories and different perspectives on alcohol, but here could be some points of agreement. The first is alcohol is associated with joy, and it can also be harmful. In Proverbs 20, verse 1, Solomon writes, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Second, church leadership is incompatible with excessive alcohol use. My job description as an elder comes from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. In 1 Timothy, we read uh, that an elder should be sober-minded and not a drunkard. In Titus 1, I'm also told not to be a drunkard. So church leadership is incompatible with excessive alcohol use, and we need you as a body to keep us accountable. Third, if alcohol use brings about or leads to other poor behavior, then maybe I should cut back. If I am lying to my spouse or employer because of alcohol use, that's a problem. If my drinking is keeping me from fellowship with the body, that's a problem. If my drinking is keeping me from loving my wife the way Christ loved the church, that's a problem. If my one drink becomes six, eight, or ten drinks, that's a problem. Fourth, it can be wise to take advice of others around alcohol that are further along in the faith. We can gain clarity from brothers and sisters further along in the faith about our strengths and weaknesses. We should probably not get this advice from our fraternity. If a brother in Christ brings up a concern, hey David, I notice you're drinking beer in the car on the way to work. Tell me more about that. That could be a concern. There may be wise advice from outside the church. As a physician, I may encourage people to avoid alcohol because of a liver problem, of hypertension or a medication interaction. And my hope is they can receive and follow that advice. So my points are, alcohol is associated with joy and there can be some harm from alcohol. Leadership is held to a high standard with its use. Limit or avoid alcohol if it is leading to sinful behavior or poor choices and listen to the advice of others. So take those thoughts with a grain of salt and please hash them out more in your small group. So what are some big takeaways from this miracle? This miracle shows his authority, divinity, and regenerating power. First, it shows his authority. Jesus is the most important person at this wedding. There is a master of the feast, a bride and groom, but Jesus is truly the one in charge. And Jesus is divine, Jesus is God. In chapter one, he's described by the author, the baptizer, and the other disciples as God. Here we see his actions that he is God. And Jesus has regenerating power. He's been the creator and sustainer, and he can still sustain you now. So Jesus was invited to this wedding. Will he be invited to a wedding you're attending this year? Invited to your own wedding, your marriage, 
As Jesus showed honor to this marriage, are there ways to show more honor to your own marriage, more honor to your spouse? And Jesus came to a party. For some of you, you do not need to dial up the parting activity in any higher. And for some, maybe God is calling you out of a shell to socialize, to be friendly, to smile, to get to know other pre-Christians that you could be instrumental in leading to Christ. When Mary had a problem, she went to Jesus. Who or what do you go to when you have a problem? Should this be changed? You can invite Jesus into dilemmas that seem embarrassingly inconsequential. Wine will give out, there will be problems, but we have the deep privilege of being in contact with Jesus. He is always equal to the crisis. Mary tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Are you doing what Jesus has told you from his word, from sermons from Pastor John? What are ways your obedience could be enlarged? Jesus is abundantly generous with his teachings and blessings. He gives the best gifts with his perfect timing. Warren Wearsby writes, the world's joy always runs out and cannot be regained, but the joy he gives is ever new and ever satisfying. The world offers the best at the first, and then once you are hooked, things start to get worse. But Jesus continues to offer that which is best until we one day enjoy the finest blessings in the eternal kingdom. And his disciples in verse 11 believed. So how is your ongoing trust and belief in Jesus? Later in chapter 12, verse 42, we read, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. Do you believe that kind of in secret, you don't want to pay the social price of following Christ? Pray for God to give you courage to follow him wherever he may lead, to trust him with whatever he calls you to do. Let's close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for this passage where you teach us of Christ's authority, divinity, and creative regenerative power. Jesus, thank you for your death and resurrection, that you have re regenerated us. As you were at this wedding, the start of this marriage, I ask you to permeate into the marriages of our body. Thank you that you attended a party and teach us where you want to go. When we have problems, help us to come to you rather than the world. Help us to do whatever you have called us to do. Thank you for your abundant blessings and perfect timing. We place our ongoing trust in you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.